Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Vlahos, and as always, I am joined by Daniel Larison, writer and commentator extraordinaire. Both of us have been toiling away, poking holes in the blob for well over a decade. We hope that this show can allow us to do more to exploit the gelatinous belly of the blob and do more damage over time. Today, we have Dave DeCamp at antiwar.com, which has been waging the fight against the blob far longer than we have, some 30 years, in fact. We'll be talking to him about his work there and his new podcast. But first, let's discuss that strange but ultimately illuminating interview of Biden on 60 Minutes on Sunday, where the president said he, he would send U.S. troops to defend Taiwan. Here's a clip. To be clear, sir, U.S. forces... U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. Dan, the White House again has tried to claw back Biden's comments, but this is like the fourth time he has suggested that the U.S. would break from longstanding strategic ambiguity to declare a full-throated defense of Taiwan in an event of a Chinese attack. Are we really to believe the White House when it says that the president's comments do not represent a change in U.S. policy. To me, this sounds like classic gaslighting. He gets to say something outrageous and totally out of the bounds of our conventional policy with China, several times, no doubt, and we are to disbelieve our own ears that what he is saying is not what we are actually hearing. What's going on here? Well, I think they, they are trying to change the policy, but they don't want to, we're not to, they don't want to admit that that's what they're doing. When they have some of their own officials having said in the past that strategic clarity, the, making the commitment to Taiwan explicit, um, has a lot of downsides. And indeed, it does have a lot of downsides, but they don't want to have to defend that policy shift outright. They want to pretend that they're still doing the same thing that we've always been doing, and therefore there's there's nothing to see. Um, but I, I don't think the public should buy that. And I know that we can see very clearly the Chinese government isn't buying that. Because the Chinese government is reacting very angrily to all of this, uh, and presumably, if there really was no change in the works, or if the Chinese government didn't fear that there was a change in the works, they wouldn't be reacting as negatively as they have been. I, I think they can see quite clearly, and, and we can see, that there are changes afoot, uh, and, and beyond making the commitment to defend Taiwan, Biden said something else that was very curious in that interview, and that I think a lot of analysts have latched onto now as the more significant part, which is that he says that Taiwan's independence is up to them. It's up for them to the, them to decide whether they're independent or not, which is absolutely not the standard U.S. position going back decades. The U.S. has always said they do not support Taiwanese independence. Uh, I think even the Bush administration flatly opposed it, or said they flatly opposed it, uh, no one has ever said that it's just up to Taiwan to decide for itself, because that is exactly the kind of unilateral change to the status quo that strategic ambiguity was supposed to avoid. Uh, the, the point of the policy was to avoid any unilateral changes by either side, uh, whether whether China or Taiwan or the U.S., uh, and what Biden has done is essentially open the door to Taiwan inching its way towards a uh, formal declaration of independence, even though, of course, everyone knows that de facto they, they do uh, govern themselves. Uh, the, the issue is that this question of formal independence, which is the big red line for the Chinese government, um, and which we're now moving in the direction of crossing. 
And so taken together with all of the other things that we've seen over the last couple of years, the Chinese government is understandably annoyed and, and frustrated with what they see as a series of moves by the U.S. to move away from that status quo. Uh, and that's and I think that's that's quite dangerous because it's going to encourage them to take their own steps to move away from their previous commitments. If they believe that we're uh, backtracking on what we've said we would do, and, and if we started doing things that we said we wouldn't do, then the Chinese government may feel free uh, to take actions that we don't want to see either. And in the end, the, the Taiwan will be the, the loser in all of this, because when push comes to shove, I think the U.S. will realize the costs of intervening on behalf of Taiwan will be too high, and Taiwan will probably get hung out to dry in the end uh, after we make all of these professions of support that we can't back up. And so that's that's the other thing that really concerns me about this, uh, is that Biden is making these declarations, but there's there's nothing really that the U.S. could do to back up those declarations of commitment if the Chinese government decided to test it in two years or five years. Uh, the U.S. isn't ready to engage in a war on that scale that it would have to engage in in order to defend Taiwan. So it's, it's setting us up for a crisis and a crisis that I don't think that we could actually come out of in good shape. I totally agree with you. I guess what's really been bugging me about this whole thing is Biden himself. Now, uh, with Trump, he used to say things on the fly all the time. And we know he had no experience in government and really in Washington politics. Everything was new to him. And after a while, you just got the sense of he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Like he doesn't know the Constitution. He doesn't know like uh, the institutional his histories. Uh, he doesn't really know how things work here. And so he would say stuff and he'd be like, oh, that's just reflective of his ignorance on a particular policy or issue or longstanding conventional U.S. approach to something. We know that Biden knows better. I mean, he's been in he's been in Washington pretty much as long as I've been alive. And I am not a spring chicken. And he's spoken on this issue, an op-ed that was flying around yesterday uh, that he wrote like 15 years ago that was really uh, in support of and ratifying, reinforcing strategic ambiguity. You know, he knows this. So what's going on here? I mean, you just pointed out, he said he made this, this pitch that Taiwan can decide for itself whether or not it wants to be independent. What is he doing when he knows better uh, to make such a seemingly reckless statement? Is, is, is there something going on here where, and somebody had suggested this to me, I can't take credit for it, that he's actually weaponizing his own gaffes, like his own reputation for being a gaff machine. He's actually using that as an example. So, you know, people say, oh, he just doesn't know. He's just a gaff machine. Is, is this more strategic on his part? And it, 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 is that more concerning than anything? Right. Well, I, I'm not sure that that is what he's doing. I, I don't, honestly, I don't know what the, the plan is because if, if there is some sort of calculation at work, I don't see what it's supposed to achieve because all, all that he is achieving is antagonizing the Chinese and making it harder for him 
to work with them on anything else by by constantly highlighting and emphasizing the Taiwan issue to the detriment of everything else. And and I, so I don't know why what what you would hope to gain by doing that unless it's another one of these sorts of defensive crouch moves where he's trying to prove his hawkish yeah credentials uh, to to ward off any possible republican attacks and so it's it's a way of saying uh, you know how hostile to china am i well i would fight them over taiwan that's how hostile i am and so you can't possibly accuse me of being soft on china which i i suppose uh biden uh feels he has to do or, or he thinks he has to do because he he fears being cast in that uh you know that weak democrat uh, stereotype that Republican blocs always like to use against Democratic presidents, but I mean, that that while that makes a kind of sense, it, it doesn't really satisfy me though because I don't think that can be a good enough reason to be taking such a, an enormous gamble like this. Because if Biden means what he says and he actually has to back it up someday, that means he'll end up basically being Harry Truman of war with China, and and that did not work out well for Harry Truman uh, or the U.S. And so I have no idea why you would want to put yourself in that position if you didn't have to. And so it's, it is, it's kind of perplexing to me. I'm not sure why. Yeah. And uh, the fact that this isn't the first time makes one wonder. Um, I don't know. And I, and I don't want to use our show to speculate on if he, on whether or not he is, his, his cognitive abilities are up to par. You know, he doesn't, you watch the video itself. I know we just played a clip and you can hear him. But when you watch the video, it's almost like he's I don't know if he was he'd be even capable of following up his answers with any comprehensive um, response in terms of what he meant by uh, sending troops in or acquiescing to that question about sending troops in. Um, what he means about allowing the, the Taiwanese to make their own decisions on independence. He, he doesn't, he looks a little lost. I have to say that, but that also, so that lends itself to this idea that he was just kind of freewheeling and then his staff has to come in and claw back his, his comments um, immediately afterward. You know, if this is calculated, if he's sort of, of playing both ends here in which on one hand he's placating the Hawks, we know exists. We talk about them all the time on this show on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans on China. He's placating them by throwing this red meat out there about, yeah, we'll defend Taiwan. Um, at the same time, it's clawed back to assure uh, us and the international community that we're not ready to get into a war. We haven't changed substantially U.S. policy. Okay, say he is playing both ends and it's all calculated, but to me, that's a dangerous game. I can see if he was doing this about domestic policy, like pl trying to play both ends of, say, voting rights or social security debate or health care or you name it, um, cutting taxes for the corporate types. That's, I mean, it's still kind of like ugh, ugly politics, but this is like war and peace we're talking about. Like this kind of language could actually lead to a war at a time when we already have, we're already involved in a proxy war in Ukraine, and we can't afford it, even if we wanted to have it a two-front war. I don't think our military is able, or capable at this point, of waging it or defending, you know, a counterattack 
by the Chinese. So I just find all of this really dangerous and um, and, 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 and immature on, on behalf of the administration who were supposed to be the adults in the room that took over when Trump vacated. Well, and, and the, the concern about overstretch is, is a real one uh, because we, we already were overstretched with the commitments that we have. And here Biden is effectively adding what is really a new one. Uh, it's, it's one that we have not formally had uh, for over 40 years since the, the treaty with Taiwan was canceled. Uh, and, and so it's we're, we're making promises that we can't actually back up, and that's going to land us in, in a lot of trouble. And just quickly, I wanted to note there was a, an interesting quote in this political article about this topic uh, that just came out this week. And they quote Daniel Russell, who's former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Um, and what he says about all of this, about this pattern that we've been seeing, uh, really struck home for me. He said, each action on the part of the U.S. or on the part of the President of the United States that seems to reaffirm the worst-case scenario in Beijing's eyes strengthens their hostility, their paranoia, their anger, and reinforces their most extreme right-wing elements. He says, it works against the prospect of any new, any kind of reconciliation or of cooperation between us and accelerates the downward spiral of strategic rivalry. And I think that gets it exactly right, and it points to the the lack of long-term focus on what is best for the United States in East Asia, uh, that, that we are constantly goading the Chinese over this issue that we know matters more to them than to us. Uh, and, and we're all going to end up regretting it. like to welcome Dave DeCamp to the show today. Dave has been the assistant editor at antiwar.com for the last several years and is really the engine behind all of their rigorous daily news curation and writing. From what I understand, Dave is responsible for thousands of articles on antiwar.com over the last three years and has now launched antiwar.com's first daily podcast. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad uh, to talk with you. Uh, and I say in person with uh, air quotes uh, because we're obviously recording in different studios, uh, but I've been reading your work for years now, and it's just nice to to put a face uh, to all of that uh, fantastic reporting that you've been doing uh, over over at antiwar.com. Um, I'm obviously I'm not I'm not sure where you get the energy. I know your work is very much appreciated um, by the loyal antiwar.com uh, community, especially now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came uh, to antiwar.com and what has motivated you to do all this work? Because I, I know you're you're working pretty much 24 seven at this point. Well, yeah. First, I just want to say both of you, Kelly and Daniel, I read you guys years before I ever started writing. So uh, it's great to hear you say oh, that, you. that you're reading my stuff now for a few years. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I started uh, just not that long ago. I mean, it was really 2019 when I first started writing for antiwar.com. I was just submitting articles and it was really, uh, you know, for years, I was always pretty anti-war non-interventionist was always kind of my point of view. I was a leftist. I considered myself a leftist back then, but I've become more of a, uh, I'm a libertarian now. Uh, but 
really what started for me, what motivated me to want to kind of get involved and start writing and stuff was the 2016 election and kind of how both sides were missing the things that were really bad about both Trump and Hillary Clinton. Now, I mean, of course, it was great. Trump was had all this rhetoric against the war in Iraq, but he also said, you know, he was going to bomb terrorist families and then which he w- went ahead and did. And I remember in 2017 when he was just obliterating uh, Raqqa, Syria, nobody seemed to notice or even care about it. And then same thing with Hillary. It's like the, the other side, the worst criticisms of her were not really focused so much on her warmongering and uh, her responsibility for Libya. Of course, we heard a lot about Benghazi and stuff, but just how she played such a big role in convincing Obama to go ahead with that intervention in, in Libya. Um, so it just seemed like what I think is the worst thing about American politicians and the worst thing that they could do is wage war on innocent people um, and both sides do it. And it just seems like it was just so ignored that, um, you know, I wanted to get involved and, and start writing. And luckily, antiwar.com gave me the place and, and I just started submitting articles and they would publish them. And that got me excited about it. And then I really liked the role that I found myself in doing the news just because I'm not an expert or by any means. And this is just such a great kind of learning experience for me because whenever I write an article, I mean, I retain that information better than if I'm just reading something like doing the extra research and putting it down. So if you watch the podcast that I do now, I mean, I just uh, really go over the articles that I write each day and I don't really have to prepare much for it. So it's, I'm able to kind of just do it quickly at the end of my work day to put it out for the next morning for like a daily podcast. Um, And Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just motivated because there's not really many places where um, you can get news, just short news stories to digest from our non-interventionist point of view. It's so true. I mean, and if if people listening to this, I I would be surprised. But if people are listening to this show right now and you're not a regular uh, reader of antiwar.com, I fully recommend it because it is a hub of information, uh, daily information from all over uh, the globe. So, and so it's not just Ukraine, it's not just Taiwan, it's every every region where there is a, uh, a conflict or uh, a US um, policy connection um, and Homeland Security stuff too. I know you guys are still curating stuff that are going on on the home front. Um, so that's just, it's just, um, it's just in, invaluable and it has been for a long time. Um, how has your work stepped up, like your workload since the Ukraine war uh, began in, in February? Can you, can you give us a sense of what it's been like to be at antiwar.com in, in really what is a U.S. proxy war um, right now? Yeah, well, I mean, it was really, it's been tough, uh, you know, just because there's been so much news to cover. And when the war first started, when Russia first invaded, it was um, kind of tough. It's just so hard to know, uh, to sort through the news, like, you know, the fog of war, as they say, and just what uh, narrative, what, what the truth is. It's really hard to narrow it down. And, you know, you end up, we get it from both sides in a way, um, more so from the people that are pro supporting Ukraine, but also people that kind of just want to believe the what Russia's saying, which, you know, you can't just take their line either. You have to kind of figure it out. And that's, it's tough. And sometimes I feel like uh, 
you know, I, I kind of sit back and wait for stories to develop more so than just throwing the breaking news out there. Cause if people want to follow the battlefield stuff, you know, on t- Twitter and telegram, there's a way to do that. But you know, for me, that's just not stuff that I should be putting into an article and saying, presenting it as fact, because we just don't really know. So it's been hard in that sense. And then also um, there's just been so much to follow with the U S policy related yeah. to it. That's kind of been my focus is the escalation on escalation and the billions. I mean, it's really unbelievable. I, I can't believe that we're in this situation today. If you would have told me a year ago that they would have sent $15 billion in weapons to Ukraine to fight a war on Russia's border. I mean, I probably wouldn't have believed you. I just can't believe how much it's escalated. And uh, it's scary, really. And especially now when they're uh, doing all this stuff to escalate with China and Taiwan. Yeah. And the funny thing, and you know, I, and I don't, I want to be remiss and not mention all the great analysis that and the viewpoints that anti-war features. And it's funny because a lot of these writers have been around for twenty years, and we're writing about all of the es- the escalation and the dangers of intervention in Iraq <laughs> and other places, and are now you know basically penning articles warning against um, getting further and further involved. Uh, in in Ukraine, so it's just it's it, I, I agree with you. It's 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 almost surreal. How can you tell us a little bit about the podcast? Because that's definitely something new for antiwar.com to have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was my idea just because it's something I was kind of kicking around for a while because I knew, you know, if you look at our news section, there's usually a pretty good amount of articles, and I usually write average about six a day. And I know just even like regular readers that I talk to, it's like, they usually don't get through just all the ones that I wrote, you know, it's people, it's tough to just to read that much. So that's why um, I used to fight this, but I kind of focus on making, you know, if you read the headline, the subhead, and maybe the first paragraph, you know, you get enough of the information. I used to have this attitude, like, oh, they got to read the whole article. But really, you know, People have things to do. Um, so I just know so many people. My, I used to be like this when I didn't work from home, when I had a different job and commuted. I digested all of my news in podcast form, really. I'm um, just throwing it on for my commute. Um, so I just know there's so many people that do that and they just don't have time to read. They don't want to read. So that was the idea to kind of condense it into it's about 25 minutes on average. And it comes out Monday through Friday for just a daily news update on U.S. foreign policy again, from our perspective. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's pretty useful. It's pretty helpful. We also, there's video on YouTube and, uh, Odyssey and stuff. Um, but I've been getting a lot of good feedback and, um, it feels good. It's kind of like a new motivation kind of jumpstarted me a little bit again to get this out every day. I think I'm getting better at it as I go. You know, it's a new thing for me, uh, doing this radio style thing, but I think it's, it's getting pretty good. Uh, definitely. And uh, thanks for coming on, Dave. It's good to talk to you. Uh, of course, I'm a big fan of anti-war and a contributor uh, in the past as well. Um, and so, of course, I, I'm a huge fan of theirs going back uh, many decades now. Um, uh, turning to the, the news, you mentioned Taiwan, uh, as that's been in the news quite a lot the last few weeks. Uh, and just this week, we had the president in an interview on 60 Minutes saying once again that the U.S. would fight to defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack. Uh, and he went so far as to say that any decision on Taiwanese independence uh, was up to them uh, entirely, uh, as if the U.S. had nothing to say about it. Um, 
and official denials that this represents no change in policy ring hollow uh, when uh, clearly there are changes in the works. Um, how dangerous do you think Biden's latest remarks are? Uh, and do you see any way to repair the relationship with China uh, from where it is now? Well, you know, I, my friend uh, Pat McFarlane, who writes at the Libertarian Institute, he wrote a good article about this kind of saying how the U.S. is just gaslights China on this issue, how they do all these things. And then they say, oh, no, we're not. We're still committed to the one China policy. We're not trying to change the status quo when it's very clear that that they are. Um, and I think Biden's comments, I mean, you know, if you watch that 60 Minutes interview, he was asked, will the U.S. defend China? And he said yes. And then he was asked again. So you're saying that American men and women will go over there to defend China from a Chinese invasion? And he said yes. So this idea that it's a gaffe, I think, is wrong. And the White House kind of tried to walk it back, but it seemed like less so than previous times. They just said, oh, yeah, he said this before, but there's no change in policy. But how are we supposed to believe that? And besides the message that it sends to China, which is definitely uh, a dangerous one, it also sends a message to Taiwan that, you know, if something does happen, if they start, you know, firing at Chinese planes in the region or something, maybe the U.S. will intervene and, and have their back in that. And it comes as this Senate bill of Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which I'm sure you guys have been talking about. Uh, would give Taiwan $6.5 billion in, in military aid over five years, I think it is, and all these other things that would just unprecedented support for Taiwan. So with that backdrop, it's very clear that it's not just, oh, the policy is the same. He's just saying that. And when it comes to, I don't see, unfortunately, I have a pretty uh, pessimistic view about this issue. I just can't imagine any administration, the next president, a Republican, especially coming in and saying, all right, we got to slow down with uh, these tensions with China. It just doesn't seem like it. I mean, if you look at Nan since Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan in early August, there was like a parade of U.S. officials after that, Democrats, Republicans, mm -hmm. just going over there to to say their, to do their part in, in trying to provoke China, it seems like. Um, so, and, and since the war in Ukraine started, since this thing happened that I didn't really think, see coming, uh, to be honest about it, I have kind of a different attitude. I used to think U.S. and China can't go to war. There's no way. Their economies are way too intertwined. But now it seems like this is escalating faster than I thought it would and that it just seems so reckless. I, I, I just don't see anybody uh, slowing it down. Well, yeah, there, there don't seem to be very many people, uh, whether in Congress or elsewhere, uh, putting on the brakes at all. In fact, as you've been talking about with the Taiwan Policy Act, uh, they're they're trying to, to ratchet up tensions even more, uh, and I, I think U.S. Chinese relations are probably worse than I can recall them ever being, uh, at least since 1989, and then probably even worse than at that time because at least then you had with the Bush administration an administration that was actually eager to keep U.S. Chinese relations on a relatively good footing, and and now clearly we don't have that. Um, how concerned are you that we'll be on a collision course for a direct conflict, say, within the next decade? Yeah, I mean, again, I used to kind of say, oh, it won't happen at least for uh, maybe a few decades. or, But now it seems like something – I mean, if they keep going in this direction, there's going to be some sort of uh, conflict It because China's not going to back down. This is kind of the most important issue to them. 
And no matter how you feel about it, people just have to recognize that uh, whatever they think of Taiwan, uh, that for China, this is like such a red line. And it's the whole foundation of U.S.-China relations. To, to open up with China, we had to cut ties with Taiwan and recognize that China was the one, Beijing was the one government of China. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely, I, I think something could spark now. And if you look at just the Chinese military activity since Pelosi visited, you know, I was looking at some numbers because numbers tell us, you know, tell you things. The, the China used to very rarely fly planes across the median line that the U.S. drew in the 50s that separates the Taiwan Strait. It's something like between the 1950s and 2020, China flew across that line like five times. Well, in the month of August, since Pelosi went, it was over 300 times that planes crossed that line. So that's just an example of the military pressure. And they simulated a blockade on, on Taiwan. And, you know, watching those military drills and just seeing on the map exactly where they were, you know, China can do something pretty quick, and, and, you know, and not necessarily an invasion because that would be a huge operation, but they could close that straight blockade the island pretty quickly. Uh, so things could happen very fast. And then what would the U.S. do if that happened? That's the big question. So, yeah, I, I'm concerned that something will happen if if we keep going in this direction sooner uh, than I originally thought. And when his and the president's uh, Taiwan remarks were also disturbing for their implications for war powers, um, since it seemed like the president was treating this as a question that was solely up to the president. And then it seems like there are many people in Congress that are inclined to agree that if the president wants to take us to war with China, the president can do that. Um, and failing that, many of them want to give him, give him an authorization to do that. Um, how can anti-war Americans start working now to stop what looks like the beginnings of a buildup to a major war? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big that's a good question. And that's a big question. What could be done to slow this policy? And I mean, people, I think, just need to be more aware of it because it. I don't think uh, many people understand how there has been a change over the past few years of U.S. policy toward China and Taiwan and the U.S. sort of military buildup in the region by sending all these warships into the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea and supporting increasing support for Taiwan. Because to a lot of people, like I don't think they realize, it seems kind of like a silly situation, Taiwan, that the US doesn't recognize them as a country to just an outside perspective and you say, oh, what's the big deal about them going over and visiting? They're an independent country. But again, it's just the background of, of what it means for China and, and US-China relations. People just need to really be more educated on that and then I guess the next step would be to put pressure on Congress and to stop this. But first, people need to understand the risk, I mean, of the U.S. and China going to war and what that would mean for the world. I remember I saw people put this clip on uh, Twitter of Joe Biden in 2011. He was standing there with Xi Jinping addressing, I think, a class of Chinese uh, uh, students saying that how are we benefit from each other's prosperity and stuff? This whole long speech, you know, they were posting it to give him a hard time about it. But what he said, something that I thought was very interesting because it was very true. He said the two world's largest economies, you know, the entire, the fate of the world depends on our relationship and he's right. And if that relationship really goes South things, I mean, the, the consequences will be very bad for everybody. Yeah, and he's talking now in such Manichaean terms uh, that it's sort of like, who was that Joe Biden of, was it 15 years ago? Or did you say 2011? 
Yeah, I think it was 2011. 2011. And it's like night and day in terms of how he's approaching China these days. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you're, you know, covering the wide swath of headlines every day. What do you think are the most underreported? Are there have there been any stories that have you seen maybe in, you know in, in recent weeks that you feel like should have gotten more play by the mainstream media and just sort of disappeared in terms of um, you know uh, you know after you you maybe put it out there and that just didn't get the the oxygen that it should have in, 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 on the foreign policy or national security front. Yeah, well, first, I was happy that you wrote that article about Somalia um, because there was a f- series of U.S. airstrikes in Somalia. It looks like there Biden's escalating and it was really yeah. nowhere. I think it was just like Military Times and like the AFRICOM press release that I saw. So I wrote that article. I saw you wrote one. Our f- friend Brett at Common Dreams wrote one. So that kind of got it more out there, which was yeah. Good to see, because that's an issue. I mean, you talk about during the Trump administration, how much he was bombing Somalia and how little people paid attention. That's right. definitely an issue. Then also, I mean, today, actually, the top story at antiwar.com is from something that I missed that happened last month. The State Department said it would stop publishing these world military expenditures yeah, and arms transfer reports that they published every year. Uh, they start, they've been publishing them since the 1960s. And really, it's just, if you look at the reports, they're huge spreadsheets. But it's all these numbers on the weapons that the U.S. has sold and transferred around the world. And it's transparency that uh, now we're losing because uh, right. there was a amendment in the last NDAA that said, ah, oh, they don't need to publish those every, every year anymore. So the State Department announced last month that they were going to do that. And I, that was barely anywhere, any coverage of that. Um, and that, you know, this comes as the U.S. is shipping billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine and is eyeing other countries to, you know, do do something similar. Um, so the transparency issue is definitely a concern. And again, there was just nowhere. It wasn't reported in any mainstream outlets that I saw, at least. Yeah, I'd like I'd love to find out who introduced that amendment to the NDAA to to cancel that longstanding report and why. Yeah, I know that's a good question. What what reason for that? And that's one thing that's so tough about these and like to figure out exactly what they're doing is just how huge these bills are, and how if you read right. them, like they don't really make sense either. The wording and stuff it's just so hard to figure out. They're impenetrable. Yeah. Yeah, and I and that and same goes for the continuing resolution that keeps the the government running. You know, every six months now they're trying to fold in a new aid package for Ukraine into this massive continuing resolution uh, that'll be, you know, voted on sometime in the next month so that the government doesn't shut down in December. And it's like, oh, that's an easy way of, of guaranteeing there won't be much debate over that Ukraine rate aid because it'll be just folded into like thousands of pages of legislation um, and nobody wants to be seen as shutting down the government. So just vote it in. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just so hard to know exactly what they're up to. So, well, thank you so much. I, we've run out of time, but we hope you'll come back on the show uh, and, and just so happy uh, that you're thriving at antiwar.com is that it, that's basically where to find you. Are there other pl- platforms for the podcast that you'd like to share where people can find the antiwar.com pa- podcast? 
Yeah. So it's, you'll find the audio version in any of the apps that you use to listen to podcasts. Um, I don't think I'm missing any at this point, but <laughs> you know, in Apple and Spotify and all that stuff. And there's also a video on YouTube. You could uh, go there and subscribe to the channel. Um, and antiwar.com, that's where you're, you'll find all my uh, writings and stuff. And you could, people could also follow me on Twitter at DeCampDave. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dave. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.